let us join together in our call to worship. A love that never ceases. A creator who calls us. A spirit which equips us. God asks us, is not this the feast I choose to loose the bonds of injustice, to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house, to clothe the naked? Then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up quickly. Having heard these promises, let us confess our sins. Please join in our unison prayer of confession. God of living water, we confess that our wells are empty. Our reservoirs of hope have run dry. We feel their absence in the careless words we have thought and spoken. 
We feel their loss in wounded relationships and unjust circumstances. Forgive what we have done and left undone, O Lord. Then let the rain of your mercy replenish the parched places in ourselves and in our world. Amen. promises us, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Brothers, sisters, siblings in Christ, all God's promises are yes. Friends, believe the good news. The peace we have in Christ is a shared peace, and it binds us together both here in the sanctuary and in our online congregation. If you are worshiping online, including those worshiping with us from Kenwood, from Watford City, North Dakota, from Charleston, South Carolina, Marco Island, Florida, Nairobi, Kenya, and points in between and beyond, wherever you are joining us in worship, please take a moment to sign the digital pew pad in an expression of the peace we share with one another. As we here in the sanctuary express that, saying together, the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Please greet those around you with words and signs of peace. God's grace and peace be with each of you and welcome to Fourth Presbyterian Church of Chicago as we begin our journey toward Easter on this first Sunday of the Lenten season. Lent is a time for us to draw closer to God's own heart as we join with Jesus in the journey to the cross and resurrection. It is a season of self-examination introspection, putting aside what distracts us from God's grace and taking on those practices which remind us of it. This is a journey that we do not take alone, but together as community. And, and community is both something we find and we make together. 
In that spirit, I invite those of you here in the sanctuary to pass the friendship or pew pads from the ends of your pews toward the center aisle and back again. This not only helps us to better connect with you as a, a visitor, an active participant, or a member, but it also allows you to get to know each other and hopefully greet each other by name before you leave here today. The journey of our community in Lent goes beyond this worship service. You can find our invitation to you in the second half of your worship bulletin. And I encourage you to take a few minutes to explore those opportunities listed there, particularly those that engage us in observing the season of Lent, from our Lenten devotions and Rhythm and Word series to the Path of Discipleship series that begins this Tuesday and offers a time in person and online for us to deepen our relationships with God and connect with each other. You'll also find opportunities for education and mission service opportunities available this morning during the 11 and 12 o'clock hours. Finally, you will find to a reminder that this coming Saturday is the last day to reserve your tickets for the Chicago Lights Gala of Hope. We hope that you will join us today after worship for a time of coffee, refreshments, and conversation in Anderson Hall as you exit the sanctuary doors to your left. And now I invite Rena Lovato and Pastor Tom forward to share a minute for mission. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for having me, and thank you. Um, Rena, you have been involved in a ministry here at the Church of the Meals Ministry. Tell us what drew you to this. Um, I was uh, I attended service here, and um, I checked out Connection Corner and saw all the wonderful opportunities offered to me to be part of this congregation. And I happened to pick the meals ministry because it mostly interests me. Being Italian, we want to feed everyone. So um, it seemed right for me. And I started, actually, I just celebrated quietly my six years here. So Fantastic. So uh, for folks who might not know much about that, uh, tell us just a little bit about what it is you do. Um, so we have several different um, feeding programs. We have Sunday night supper, which we do every week. Um, we have cookers who make the meals for our guests. Then we also have people serving in the dining room. On Monday night, we go to Catholic Charities, where we also provide um, 100, actually 220 meals now for um, the needy. We have a lunch program where we offer lunch Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. We have sandwich making on Thursdays. We have bulk breakdown. There's a lot of things you can do. <laughs> so um, you've been involved in this for six years. Yes, sir. What has this, what has this meant to you? It means a lot. Um, I've been able to extend acts of kindness to people who on the street do not get respect or dignity. When they walk through our doors, we feed them, not only 
their body but their soul. We offer them kindness, um, conversation, anything that they might need. And I can truly say that I've had more people say to me who have so much less than me, God bless you for doing this. So it's been um, a nice ride. Well, we thank you for serving in this way, and I invite uh, the rest of us to uh, following worship to linger in Anderson Hall, and you can learn more about this ministry as well as many other ministries of Fourth Church. Thank you so much. so much. Thank you.
Friends, as we prepare to hear scripture, let us pray. Holy God, your word shelters us like a pillar of cloud by day and leads us like a pillar of fire by night. We ask that as we hear scripture and your good news proclaimed, that you would give us nourishment for our spiritual and life journeys. Help us to respond to your provision with love and faithfulness and guide our feet so that we would not run the race of life in vain and that we would run it with courage. Amen. Our first lesson comes from the Gospel according to John chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself but his disciples who baptized, he left Judea and started back to Galilee. But Jesus had to go through Samaria, so he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out of his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. The word of God for the people of God.
conversation between Jesus and this woman of Samaria continues. Let us listen. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, what do you want or why are you speaking with her? When the woman left her water jar, then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and we're on their way to him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Amen. In the Gospel of John, Jesus talks a lot. One of the early conversations is with a Samaritan woman. Despite Jesus being rather chatty, there are a number of reasons this conversation should never have taken place. Jesus is a man, she is a woman. In those days, it was rare, even deemed inappropriate, for a man to speak to a woman in public like this. In addition, Jesus is Jewish, she is a Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans did not care for each other. Racism exacerbated by violent history made this an unlikely conversation. And yet, if a Jew and a Samaritan were going to have a conversation, there's one subject that everyone knows will be put on the table. Where do we worship? She says, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you insist that worship must take place in Jerusalem. It seems like a question of geography. Where's the best place to pray? I love this sanctuary. It is easy in here to remember that we are in the presence of God. Place matters. But we also know that God is not tied to place. 
So what do we do with this woman who wonders if Jerusalem is somehow more holy than Samaria? John helps us out. He editorializes. He says, Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. That is both right and absolutely wrong. I know what John means. They did not share, Jews did not share meals with Samaritans. They did not share prayers. They did not share neighborhoods. They did not share water jars. But what they did share was history. She mentions, my ancestors worshiped on this mountain. She's speaking of a sanctuary that was on Mount Gerizim where Samaritans worshiped. But when she speaks to Jesus, the temple she refers to no longer exists. 150 years earlier, the temple had been destroyed. High priest John Hyrcanus led a band of soldiers to destroy, to raise the temple on Mount Gerizim where Samaritans had worshiped. As history goes, over time, power uh, shifted. The Samaritans later extracted revenge. Hatred ran both ways. Everybody bled. At the root of the violence was a theological claim. We matter more to God than you do. God will not hear your prayers. So she asked Jesus, do you think your people matter more to God than me? This conversation between a Samaritan woman and a Jewish Jesus feels extraordinarily contemporary to me, particularly in these February days of black history. Uh, race is a subject to which I should speak with humility because there are very few days in my life I've been mindful of race at all. I, I grew up assuming that the way I experienced the world was normative, even universal. I now recognize for people of color there's never a day when race can be ignored for it's planted in the ground and housing covenants and it's planted in the economy and it lives in the language of our politics and it finds theological justification in some churches, much like it did in Jesus's day. I'm instructed by Dr. Eddie Glaude Jr., professor of African-American studies at Princeton. In his book, Begin Again, he states that to be a person of color in America is to do battle with what Glaude calls the lie. The lie he identifies as a broad and powerful architecture of false assumptions that insists that white lives matter more than other lives. I'm sure you don't believe that, but it is. It is the persistent and consistent teaching of America. There's never been a period, including our own, when the culture has not insisted that white lives matter most. And for people of color, I imagine, it takes remarkable courage to engage the spiritual battle to deny this lie that for so long and with such persistence continues. 
And I think this Samaritan woman shows that exact courage. When she asked Jesus about where to worship, it's not a question of geography, it's a question of history. Do you stand with those who burned down my church? Do you stand with those who still insist that God cannot hear my prayer, she asked? If a Jew and a Samaritan were going to talk, this would be the question that would arise because they didn't share things except this painful and bloody history that they can't forget. It's philosopher George Santanyana who says, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Santanyana implies forgetting the past comes easily. He's got a point. In Billy Collins' poem, Forgetfulness, he writes of how easy it is to forget things. The poem reads this way. The name of the author is the first to go, followed obediently by the title, the plot, the heartbreaking conclusion, the entire novel, which suddenly becomes one you have never heard of, never read. As if one by one, the memories you used to harbor decided to retire to the southern hemisphere of the brain to a little fishing village where there are no phones. Long ago, you kissed the names of the nine muses goodbye and watched the quadratic equation pack its bag. And even now, as you memorize the order of the planets, something else is slipping away. A state flower, perhaps, the address of an uncle, the capital of Paraguay. Whatever it is you're struggling to remember, it is not poised on the tip of your tongue, not even lurking in some obscure corner of your spleen. It has floated down a dark mythological river whose name begins with L as far as you can recall. Collins is right. Forgetfulness is the unwavering march the mind makes despite all efforts to the contrary. I find myself struggling to remember people's names. Back in Kansas City, when I would go visit people in the hospital, they had a huge parking garage. If I could find my car after the visit, I counted it as a victory of sorts. I really did. And when the chair of the committee would come to me and say, Tom, do you want us to report the session in the same fashion we did last year? I'd just say, absolutely. And don't tell them, I have no memory of how you reported last year. I can forget just about anything. Given this reality, it is odd how there are some things I find it almost impossible to forget. For the longest time, I could not forget a conversation Carol and I, my wife and I, had in 1986 about curtains. You don't need to know the details, although I could provide them for you easily. But suffice it to say, it is a conversation that left us both a bit injured. Because of the injury, the conversation is not only remembered with clarity, but it also is a conversation that experienced something of its own resurrection, showing up in other conversations later that had nothing to do with curtains. Satanyana says, remember the past or you're condemned to repeat it. But when the past involves injury, 
It's not Santayana who has it. It's Faulkner. And Faulkner says, the past is never dead. It's not even past. If you go to a new doctor, she's going to ask you your history, your surgeries, your medications, your ailments. Why? Because what happened in the body yesterday has implications for what's happening in the body today. The heart is the same way. The heart has a history. And what happened in our hearts yesterday has implications for what happens in our hearts today. And our hearts are shaped by experience, some good, some painful, but we carry that experience with us into new experiences and it can shape how we see the present. That's why sometimes in heated conversations that have nothing to do with curtains, I find myself talking about curtains. Jesus understands that every one of us carries history with us, sometimes dramatic, sometimes traumatic, sometimes less severe, but no one escapes injury. Sometimes you bring that injury here, the pain of a failed relationship, the lost job that attacks more than your income but levels your self-esteem, Friends betray us, or the church lets us down. A friend or a perfect stranger fails to see your humanity. There are injuries we cannot easily forget. And I don't know what injuries you may be carrying here to this very moment, but sometimes they rise up into ordinary noontime conversations when we think we're just there to get a sip of water and all of a sudden a word is said in the present and it brings the past crashing in. For the past is never dead. It isn't even past. This Samaritan woman who carries in her heart the degrading injury in history of those who assume that they were more righteous, she asked, what do we do with this past, Jesus? And if I understand the text, he promises her that she is not defined by the evil the world has done to her. She is defined by the love that God holds for her. It is his invitation to her to reframe the lie of her past, to see the present defined less by what the world has done to her and more by what God has done for her. But to see that takes courage. I was in high school and I bought my grandfather's car. It was a chocolate brown Pontiac Catalina with 146,000 miles on it. All of those he uh, drug through uh, the, the back roads of South Carolina as he supplied hardware stores with paint supplies. He said I could have his car for $500. I gave it to him. He said I could have his car for $500 as is, is actually what he said. And I gave him $500. He counted it, 
twice and then gave me the keys. And when I got home, I began the process of removing the sugar from his car. All through the car were those little packets of sugar you could get at restaurants. They were under the seat and in the seat. It slid down the dash into the defrost vents. Every day, my grandfather would go to Hardee's for breakfast. He would get a coffee in the drive-thru that asked cream or sugar. He'd say, no cream, but sugar, lots of sugar, please. He drank his coffee black, but they're offering free sugar. And so he took it every day. And at the end of the week, he would come home and bring little sugar packets, obviously not all of them, but he'd bring little sugar packets and one by one empty them into the sugar bowl on the kitchen table. He called it his little extra compensation. He did this for the same reason that he saved every can and jar, for the same reason he wore his shoes until his feet got wet and he wore his shirts until his elbows poked through the sleeves. This man was a child of the depression, and that yesterday governed every today. He never shook the fear that there would not be enough, but I think it was deeper than that. I think those brutal days somehow convinced him that he was not enough. Toward the end, he had few rational thoughts as his brain died more quickly than the rest of him. But as many days as not, he would return from the dining hall at the Presbyterian home to discover little packets of sugar that he had swiped from the dining hall table, stuffed into the pockets of his sweater. I am like that man for reasons beyond genetics. We get trapped by our yesterdays, particularly by the pain of our yesterdays. In various ways, the world will batter you, deny you, ignore you, imply that it is others who really matter. For this reason, Jews and Samaritans didn't share things in common except history. But Jesus says to this woman that history does not define you. It's real, it's painful, but it does not define who you are. And he knows how the world can crucify you. He promises that there's a way to reframe that lie, to recognize we're not defined by what the world does to us, but by the love God has for us. It takes courage to trust that in the world as it is, a world that often says you're not enough. It takes courage to trust when the world says that, that it's a lie. There's a little miracle in this passage. For it seems that in John's congregation, the congregation to whom he tells the story, it was constituted by both Jews and Samaritans. They were there together. It doesn't tell us how, and it couldn't have been easy, but somehow they mustered the courage to face the truth of who they had been together, and they chose to set that life aside, to recognize the former way of hating one another is a lie, 
and to embrace the truth of who they are, all children of God. And they began to share things like meals and prayers and neighborhoods and jars of water. And they began to build a new history. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe, help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray, amen. join me in affirming what we believe using the words in our bulletins. We believe in God, creator of all things, heavenly Father and Mother, of infinite love, wisdom, and power, ruler of all that is and all that is to come, who is mystery and yet revealed, 
We follow Christ, God's chosen one, who loved and served humbly, who gave his life for our redemption, and who was raised by God to new life. We trust that he accompanies us and will help guide, heal, and defend us through all difficulty and suffering. We believe the Holy Spirit guides us, empowers us, and sustains us as servants of God's grace. We live as the body of Christ, in the power of forgiveness, and the reality of resurrection, and the light of eternal life. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, you are the wellspring of life, the creator of all things. We give you thanks that you have created us, that you have given us each other, and that you brought us to this day, to this church, to this community. We lift up our hearts to you, aware of our own neediness and aware of the great needs of this world. We have received the gift of life and the capacity to love, as well as the capacity to create. Thank you for pouring vitality into us. We ask that you continue to fill us with your possibilities, your hopes, and your dreams for this world, for our future. Help us to serve you by serving your world and all sentient beings. You have created us all, and we give you thanks for the exuberant diversity of your creation. In the midst of the beauty of your creation, God, your people are also suffering. We suffer many losses, many injuries, from the loss of health to the loss of loved ones from the loss of jobs to the loss of meaning and purpose. We have lost so many beloveds to gun violence, to cancer and other illnesses, to addictions, and to war. Help us to heal this world. Give wisdom and courage to leaders who can change the course of history, and give wisdom and courage to us to change the things that we can change. We know that you are unimaginably and miraculously with each of us in every moment of our need and every moment of our joy. Help us to know you, to feel you, to remember that you are here now and that you journey with us to guide, support, comfort, and heal us. You know our prayers before we say them, before we even think them. Receive the prayers of our hearts and the prayers of our lips, even as we pray as Jesus taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Having received life from the God of all creation, let us also give gifts that affirm life and that enable our church to heal and care and serve. From all that God has given us, our morning offering will now be received.
join in the prayer of dedication. Gracious God, we thank you for all the ways that you give yourself to us. Our ways of worship and service are always imperfect, but you speak to us in our hearts. May we listen always for your word to lead us, correct us, guide us, and set us free for loving service for the sake of the healing of the world. In the name of Christ, amen.
we go from this place, remember that this is true. You are loved. The love of God calls you by name. It is a love that will never let you go. So let that love inspire, encourage, instruct you to do the good that is yours to do this week, to share the love that is yours to share. And God will use that to lead us to God's promised day. It is a day when justice will roll down like waters. It is a day when swords are beaten into plowshares. It is a day when the children grow to be neither the destroyers nor the destroyed. We are living toward that day. And now may the love of God, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the fellowship of God's Spirit rest and abide with us all, now and forever. Amen.